Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a church that loves your word. Thank you for the opportunity, the season that you've given us to minister through it. Please, Father, make us equal to the challenge. Help us to do the work you've called us to do. We thank you for your equipping. We're amazed at your providence, your wisdom, your timing, the gifts you give us. And with that, Father, also comes a sober recognition that there's something we are to do with these things that will glorify you. So, Father, I ask that as you provide and as you care for us, as you do, that you would also direct us and guide us into the right things to do, the right ways to go. Don't let us waste the opportunities you give us, Father. And don't let us take them for granted. And in your word tonight, Father, I pray that you would teach us as only you can, speaking powerfully to our hearts about the truth of this word and about the necessity to carry it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, after a week of break, we're back in the text of Matthew. Time to return to his description of Jesus' miracles in the Galilee. I'm sure most of you know this as you've studied with me that we're in the middle of a two-chapter set. Actually, we're near the end of this set of chapters 8 and 9. These chapters where Matthew groups together uh, a series of miracles that exemplify the work Jesus did in the Galilee while he was ministering there. And he has arranged these miracles in a particular way, three groups of three And in the middle of these, between the groups, he's given us some other scenes. Uh, The groups of miracles are there to show that Jesus has power in certain areas. Did all of these demonstrate his authority and his power and his uh, identity as Messiah? The final group we join tonight, it's the group that basically shows Jesus' power to restore. That is, the specific miracles themselves are going to be similar to ones you've seen before. Healing, demonic possession, and so on. But nonetheless, these final group of three constitute a distinct group from the others that we've already seen because of two characteristics that they all share. First, all three of them involve a form of bondage under which the person is now captive that Jesus sets the person free from. And secondly, in all three cases now, Jesus is going to make the person's faith a prerequisite to receiving the miracle that Jesus is planning to do. Now, you might think that's a a given, but it's not. Prior to this moment in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has never yet required anyone to have faith whatsoever before he performed a miracle. In fact, there was rarely even an exchange of words in most cases. But now that's changed. So, let's step back for just a moment, because as you look across the three groups of miracles that go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8, you begin to see a message that Matthew wanted us to see. In the first case, the group that we studied initially, we learned Jesus is the one who heals. And then the second group, Jesus is the one with all power and all authority. And now this group, Jesus is the one who restores all things. That is, in short, Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill the covenants, for that is what the covenants promise. And just to make sure you get the point, Matthew bookended this two-chapter section with two miracles on either end that we call the Messianic miracles, known as such because they are unique to the Messiah. No one ever has done them before, nor would they. We studied the first of those at the beginning of chapter 8, and we will study the last of those when we finish this chapter. So that's the roadmap, if you will, of where we're going and what we're here to study. Tonight we're going to begin, as I said, the examination of that third group of miracles. We won't do all of them tonight, you knew that. But as we go through them, I want you to remember that Matthew has chosen to group these miracles together in order to make a point about Jesus. And to create these groupings, he had to stitch together events that did not necessarily happen in chronological order. In fact, I would tell you this generally in Scripture. It's usually a dangerous assumption 
to expect that what you read in a book of Scripture was written as a chronological history. While that's how we tend to consume information, that is not necessarily the way ancient writers preferred to write. It's certainly not the way the Bible is necessarily laid out. So we look for contextual detail to tell us when and if something is in sequence or out of sequence. And as we look at these, you'll see as we, as we do our study, that Matthew has particularly moved things around for this final group. And he does so for a very specific reason that, unfortunately, doesn't come fully to bear until chapter 12. So that's just a bit of a hook to keep you gumming for at least the next several weeks. But when we get to chapter 12, the need to displace things chronologically will become much clearer to you in this chapter. All right, moving on. Let's begin with the first of these miracles. And Matthew records this first miracle, interestingly, as a miracle within a miracle. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. Let's review the scene here as we open. We're in chapter 9, verse 18. And in this moment, you have Jesus and his disciples. They've been in conflict with the Pharisees over rules of the Mishnah. That's the Jewish name given to a book of rabbinical rules written in Jesus' day. None of those rules are based in Scripture. In this case, the ones that caused the Pharisees' concern were that Jesus and his disciples were eating with so-called sinners and that he was failing to observe the twice-a-week fasting that was common among all Pharisees. And because he's not doing what Pharisees do in the way Pharisees said it should be done, they're not happy with him. But as I said, none of these requirements come out of the Bible. He's not sinning. He's just not following their rules. And so, as a result, you have a moment of conflict. And out of that moment, you have this desperate father arriving to ask for Jesus' help. I'm just going to start with a single verse. Verse 18, it says, When he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. All right, so Matthew tells us that a ruler came to visit Jesus. Now, in the context of a Jewish author, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, as we understand this gospel to be directed, The word ruler has a very specific meaning to that community. Jews who ran the local synagogue were called the rulers of the synagogue. So this man is a ruler in the sense that he is the local synagogue official for the synagogue in Capernaum, which is where they're nearby. And if you want confirmation of this, you only have to turn to Mark's gospel, because in Mark's gospel account of this same moment, he actually gives the man a name. His name is Jairus, and he says he was the synagogue official. So that's what ruler means here. Now, in the day of Jesus, the role of a teacher and the role of a synagogue official were separate. Unlike how we typically do it, where the pastor is a teacher, they they tend to be the same guy. Not the case in the way Pharisees worked, or in the case of synagogues. You had scribes and, and rabbis who taught, and then you had synagogue officials, and they were the administrative leader of the body. They were kind of the sergeant of arms, the keeper of custom, the keeper of the money. They kind of ran the place. And let the teachers do what they did. So they were personally responsible for ensuring proper conduct in all religious activities in the synagogue. Barclay, a famous uh, biblical commentator, Barclay, he has an interesting quote about how these men worked. He says, They were elected from among the elders. He was not a teaching or preaching official. He had the care of the external order in public worship and the supervision of the concerns of the synagogue in general. He appointed those who would read and to pray and who would preach Uh, It was his duty to see that nothing unfitting took place within the synagogue, and the care of the buildings were in his oversight. Now, why am I giving you all that background? Well, this man's job was to enforce proper worship. If you got out of line in worship, he would be the guy to tell you so, which makes his behavior before Jesus 
all the more remarkable. It says he kneels before Jesus. Now, kneeling is an act of worship in Jewish culture. And it's not merely a respect for authority. It's not the same thing as saying Lord, which can sometimes mean God and sometimes can just mean Sir. Kneeling always meant worship. And the Jews of Jesus' day were especially sensitive to anything that might smack of blasphemy or of idolatry. And so, and you have examples of this, by the way. Jews would not handle Roman coins. And you know why they would not handle a Roman coin? Because on it was a picture of Caesar. And Caesar said he was a god, which makes that an idol. Which means if they handled it, they were participating, they saw, in idolatry. Which is, by the way, why you have money changers in the temple. Because you come in with Roman coins, which you can't use in the temple, so you had to change them for Jewish coins, which were only used in the temple. Made for a convenient business if you were a Pharisee. Meanwhile, though, their sensitivity to this idea of idolatry meant that they would never kneel before another human being. For doing such was an act of worship. You'll never see in the Bible a Jew, an observant Jew, kneeling before anyone. Not even the king of Israel. Not a prophet. Kneeling is reserved for worship. In Psalm 95.6, it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So that's how Jews saw that posture. So here you have a man who's in charge of making sure everyone follows that rule, kneeling before what looks to be a nobody out of Nazareth, to the average Pharisee at least, which tells us that he truly believed Jesus was worthy of worship. And given his position, it means that he has had to de- demonstrate supreme faith in coming even this far and doing what he just did. Because that kind of display of reverence would have been reason for the Pharisees to charge him with blasphemy, which in that culture carried the death penalty. This is no small act. This is no small thing. Publicly kneeling before another man is an act of blasphemy by the guy who's responsible for not letting such things happen. This is a pretty serious moment for him. He just made a decision. It would seem as though he understood that if he hoped to get Jesus' attention and seek healing for his daughter, he could not hold back his worship. He could not do it halfway. You know, it would be really easy for me now to start making applications, and I'll, I'll resist it for the most part, but you know, it's sort of the difference between singing and standing during worship. Or singing and hands up versus not. I mean, those are just simple ways to illustrate it. I'm not saying those are rules. But what I am saying is, this man knew he had to have both hands up, singing loudly, doing the whole thing. He couldn't do it halfway. Because what he wanted from God, in this case, was dependent on Jesus knowing he recognized his divinity, he recognized his position, he wasn't hedging his bets. I think that's sometimes, I'm just off on my little tangent here, but I think that's sometimes how we approach worship in general, whether it's singing worship or another context. It's, it's almost kind of a hedging of our bets thought there. Uh, maybe not intentionally, but I'm going to show God I'm worshiping Him, but just enough that He notices and no one else. Because I don't really like the public nature of it. And so we kind of hold back just enough that we kind of get credit with God and, and no embarrassment from our friends who would probably look twice if I raised my hands, God forbid. There's a little sense in all of us that the public attitudes must be balanced with God's needs. And this guy just threw that out the window. He had to put everything on the line to to worship Jesus right now. His reputation is gone. His occupation is probably gone. His acceptance in the community. What about his own life, perhaps? Now, I don't think this guy was charged. We don't know that he was or wasn't. It probably didn't come to that. But he didn't know that. And he acted in faith because he was desperate to see his daughter restored. Which is as good as reason as any, I would argue. Matthew records this man saying, My daughter has died. 
But Luke and Mark record him as saying, my daughter is dying. That's obviously a difference. And in all the Gospels, as Jesus finally gets to the point of the girl's house, she is dead by the time he gets there in all the accounts. So what that tells us is this man probably left the house while she was alive, seeking Jesus. And therefore, what Matthew does in his account is condense the facts, if you want to call it that. He cuts to the chase. Uh, Eventually, he's going to be raising a dead girl. That's where the story's going. He just moves us to that point in the story right from the outset to make the story simpler. And not coincidentally, Matthew's account is by far the shortest of the three. So we know from the others that this man left with the expectation that we might get there in time. Jesus might make it before she dies and heal her. So he makes his appeal of Jesus by his demonstration of faith, and Jesus responds by saying, yes, I'll follow you back to the house. But as they go, here's our miracle within the miracle. Another situation develops. Verse 19. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. All right, so this is that miracle within the miracle because the story of Jairus and his daughter ain't over yet. We still got that coming. But Matthew's telling of this miracle of Jairus is interrupted by the account of this woman. And what's interesting is Mark and Luke do the same thing. So all three accounts of this scene intertwine the two miracles, which suggests to us that these three writers recognize that these two scenes are related in some way. They're meant to be kept together. And as they go, we're told that Jesus and the, and the man, as they go, it says they're followed by a crowd. I love this scene. I want to help you see it in your mind because it's a really big part of the story. Um, uh, there's a crowd with Jesus. That's not surprising, I know. But this crowd is clamoring for him, trying to get to him to be healed, just like the woman is. And they're coming at him from all directions. Now, Matthew doesn't say anything about this in his account. Again, he's condensed it. But in Mark and Luke, we're told this crowd is so dense. Luke uses a Greek word that means suffocate to describe the effect of the crowd. It's like they're choking all the air out. They're pushing on Jesus with such intensity. It's like trying to move through um, a a dense crowd at a concert or or maybe at the entrance of a football game when everybody's jammed up trying to get in. And you know that uncomfortable feeling like you're not in control of your own space anymore? Is that just me? That's just me. But that's what he's dealing with as he moves. Now I want you to imagine this for a second. You have a noisy crowd. They're all desperate. They're trying to get to him. They're pushing. They're shoving. Uh, Jarius is trying to cut a path through this crowd, leading them back to his house. Jesus is following. He's being jostled by the crowd. You've got the disciples probably with him, trying to you know, run interference and protect him from the crowd as he moves. Something like that. And the reason this is important is because the text says somewhere out of that moment, this woman, fighting her way, comes up through the crowd from behind, determined to get to him. And she is, it says, now this is not the funny part, obviously, but she's been hemorrhaging, it says, for 12 years. Uh, and we don't know exactly what kind of thing she's suffering from, but most likely, given the way the text is handling her situation, it probably refers to a menstrual cycle that's been running unabated for 144 months. Uh, which, you know, the women in here, I'm sure, would, would be able to the better ones to tell you, but that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Here's another interesting clue between these two stories being intertwined. In Mark and Luke, we also learn that the girl that is about to die is 12 years old also. So both women have a 12 connecting them. And that curiosity further sort of brings a linkage here that we're trying to understand and make sense of. So that's part of our puzzle that we're going to have to solve. Going on, 
In the law, Leviticus, the Lord in Leviticus 15, he gave strict rules to Israel about how to deal with individuals, to put this delicately, who were experiencing fluid discharge from the body. That's actually the terminology. And it didn't just cover her situation, it covered any situation. But as long as a person was in that condition, they were considered ritually unclean in Jewish society. And anyone who is unclean instantly falls under very strict requirements. That anything they touch is unclean. What they sleep on or sit on is unclean. Anyone who touches them is unclean. And ritual uncleanness doesn't mean they have some spiritual problem. It's ritual. It's, it's practice. It doesn't necessarily have anything to say about them as a person. It was a practice in the law that established certain principles God used to teach Israel important matters. But it had effect. It was powerful. People lived according to these rules. And now when someone became unclean from whatever cause, the, the event usually was short, short-lived, uh, maybe a day, maybe a week, they were considered unclean, that was it. In other words, it was enough time to make the spiritual point that God wanted to make, but it wasn't so long as to cause a lot of distress. You weren't, you weren't in a bad situation for too long. And after the appointed time, the law would again give the person a way to become clean again through some kind of ritual, a sacrifice, and so on. But now you have a woman who's just been in a constant state of uncleanliness. Her bleeding never stops, so she can never get clean under the law. And as long as she has remained in this condition, she has not been able to experience normal life. It's hard for us to appreciate what this was like. We just don't have these rules, thankfully. But she hasn't known what normal life is like for 12 years. Beyond the obvious discomfort and embarrassment, she has been forced to live in a constant state of separation. She's likely become estranged from her family. They can't touch her. She can't sit on their furniture. I mean, this is the condition she's in, according to the law. She's probably lost contact with a lot of her friends. In fact, I'm here to tell you, based on what I'm reading in the text, that she has moved away from her home. That she's living here in a lie, basically, away from anyone who knows her, so that she can conceal her situation and still blend in with society. And I tell you that because it doesn't appear as though anybody in the scene knew of her condition. Later, we're going to hear that she had to confess about the seriousness of what she was experiencing, that they didn't know it. So that would tell me that she's moved away to hide herself while she's dealing with this. So as she approaches Jesus from the the rear here, the, the reason she comes in the way she does is because she knows her condition is a problem. And she has to come secretly, lest she even get a chance to get to him. I mean, she knew rabbis weren't going to touch an unclean woman or have anything to do with her. And more than that, you've got a crowd that's pressing around each other. You can't just push elbows through a crowd when you're unclean. They'll kill you, literally. If an unclean person doesn't respect the rules, everybody else is going to be doing something against them. So she has to be doing this secretly to get even anywhere near Jesus. Now the other Gospels tell us that this woman had searched for cures from every doctor she could. She spent all her money trying to get cured. And the doctors had just made things worse. And as a result, she's at the point now where she doesn't have another answer. So she hears from somewhere that there's the Messiah in town. And that he's been healing everyone. And in that moment, and here's the part where the story I think gets really interesting, at least to me. In the moment that she heard the Messiah was in town, she remembered something that she was taught from Scripture when she was probably a young girl in the synagogue. And based on what she remembered, she knew immediately that she could be healed and how it had to happen. And... She gathers her courage, she blends into the crowd, she pushes her way to the front, gets close enough to touch Jesus, and she grabs the hem of his clothing. Now, that may sound like a superstitious act on her part, right? You've heard people say that, right? If I just touch this stone or kiss this rock or go to this building or pray at this you know, cathedral, something magical will happen, God will do what I want him to do. All right, that's, that's religion, 
But that's not relationship with God. That's man trying to reach God. That's not God revealing himself to us. That is fake. What we know in faith is real. But we're looking at this woman and we might be tempted to put her over here. You know, some, some superstitious belief that God nonetheless honors because she's trying to find a way to get here. No, that's not what happened here. That's not at all what happened here. And to understand this scene properly, we've got to spend just a moment understanding an obscure prophecy out of the Old Testament. One that she had placed her faith in. And it begins with the clothing that's typically worn by rabbis. Typically, men in Israel wore two garments. You had an under-tunic, basically, which would be like modern-day underwear. Just a long under-robe, uh, I guess you'd say, or tunic. It was light uh, linen. And then over that, they had a heavier outer robe that was likewise draping them all the way to the ground. And then over that robe, men would wear on occasion a shawl that would typically hang around their shoulders, draped over their shoulders, and go almost all the way to the ground again. And that shawl was a long rectangular piece of cloth called a talit. And a talit is a, uh, we sometimes call it a prayer shawl today. And when they would pray, they might put it over their head. And then the rest of the time it might hang around their shoulders. Now the four corners of that rectangular piece of fabric, the shawl, are called corners or wings in Scripture. And on the corners, on the wings of that garment, hung tassels, little braided cords. And the Lord had required Israel in the law to place these tassels on their clothing. It comes out of Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 37, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. All right, so those are the cords. Traditionally, these cords are knotted by the Jews into five knots. Each of those knots represents one of the books of the Torah, with the five first books of the Bible. It says Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's how they had designed their clothing. And over the years, uh, it's kind of a funny story, these tassels have become a very important symbol in Jewish society. They actually came to represent the man's authority, his prestige, his honor. We're all embodied in these little tassels on the bottom of their clothing. In fact, you find ancient clay tablets in which a man has made an impression with the tassels of his garment as his signature to a covenant in the clay tablet. So it meant something. A man could divorce his wife in Israel by cutting off the tassels on her garment. That was a symbol of separation. And to remove a man's hem from his clothing was a sign of humiliation for that man. You may remember in uh, 1 Samuel 24, that that famous scene, I think it's famous because people talk about it, but the scene where David hides in the cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself in that same cave. You know, if you're thinking, that's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Saul's, Saul's doing his thing in the cave and David's been running from Saul. Saul's been trying to kill him. David sneaks up behind him, remember? What does he do? He cuts off a hem. Now, in the scene, it looks as though he's simply trying to make a point to Saul that I could have killed you and I didn't. And that's certainly part of it. But what he also just did was humiliate the king by removing the hem of his clothing. And later David repents of that and confesses that sin because he dishonored the king in doing that. All right, naturally then, any symbol of importance like this one was tailor-made for abuse by the Pharisees because they loved anything that gave them prominence, anything that gave them uh, authority. So the Pharisees had taken to wearing their talit all the time when normally in Jewish society it was only worn on special occasions. They wore it all the time. And when that stopped gaining them the attention they wanted, they came up with a new idea. 
Some enterprising Pharisee had the bright idea that if he made his cord just a little longer than everybody else's cords, it would just give him a little added distinction. And of course, as he did that, the other Pharisees, you know, these guys are smart. They pick up on the least little detail because they're all following the same rules. They see, you know, Joe Innovator here come up with his little longer tassels and they're like, check him out. What's he doing over there? Who's he think he is? And they go home and they make theirs just a little longer than Joe's. And it just keeps going on and on like that. Next thing you know, their tassels are dragging on the floor. They got all of them as long as they can possibly make them. That's literally what happened. Later in the Gospels, Jesus mocks them for this very behavior. He says in Matthew 23, 5, talking about the Pharisees, Jesus says, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Okay? So now, back to the woman in our story. She thought to herself, as we heard, that she only needed to touch one of Jesus' tassels, the hem, basically, of his garment, in order to be healed, believing that the power and the authority of Jesus was contained there, if you will, that it could be accessed from that place. And again, at first that sounds superstitious to us. Even with the background I just gave you, it still sounds like she's just assuming things that she shouldn't assume. But her confidence goes deeper than merely tradition here. She believed that touching Jesus in this way would result in her healing because there is a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that makes that promise. In Malachi 4.2, We're told this, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So the prophet says, Those who fear the name of the Lord will see him, the Messiah, bring healing to his people. And he refers to him in that passage as the Son of Righteousness. Now, if you're not looking at your Bible in Malachi 4.2, I'm sure you didn't page there very quickly, but I'll just tell you that the the word son there in English is S-U-N. And that's because in Hebrew, it's the word Shemesh, which is the word for son, not Ben, which is the name for the offspring kind of son. So you might look at that and you think, well, that's kind of odd. Why didn't he just say son, S-O-N? Well, it's really just a, a happenstance of English that the two words sound alike. It wasn't intended to sound alike in the way it was written originally. Those two words are very different in Hebrew. But it's obviously metaphor. Malachi is speaking about the Messiah. The context is clear. And he's saying that the rising of the sun... The Son of Righteousness will be a symbolic way of representing the glorious appearing of the Messiah. It's all still the same thing. So you have the dawning of Messiah and the dawning of the kingdom coming with it in the context of healing, and the healing will be in his wings, it says. Now, the word wings may sound like metaphor, euphemism, or whatever, but not in that culture. It's the literal Hebrew word for the corners of the talit. In fact, in Numbers, where I read you, where it said they will put cords on the corners, the word corner there is kinesh, that's literally the word for wing in Hebrew. So he's saying, in that part of the garment will be healing. So, like all Jews, this woman grew up hearing that the Messiah would possess the power to heal in the corners of his shawl. Alright, so she hears the Messiah is in the Galilee, and in faith, she runs after him, believing, as it says in verse 21, if I touch his garment, I will get well. That's not superstition, That's not prosperity gospel nonsense or something of that sort. This is a woman who knew her Bible. Now, her understanding of it might have been simplistic, because we know Malachi is talking about the kingdom, but that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that her faith went to the immediate need of her life, saw Messiah as the provision God had made, and knew what she had to do. Matthew records that as she is met by Jesus, it says she gets well instantly. Verse 22. More than a physical healing, this woman just got restored. You know, she got her life back. 
And not just in the simple idea that her physical health is returned and she can live a normal life there. She got her friends back, her family back, her status back, everything. After 12 years, she's finally clean. Matthew records in verse 22 that Jesus turned and told her, you were healed, but you were healed by your faith, it says, not by the garment per se. But Mark says that the healing actually happened before Jesus turned. And this opens a new and interesting moment because Jesus did not actively participate in the healing. It says that Jesus sensed power had gone out from him as he was walking. It says that in Mark and in Luke. So he is not consciously involved in this healing. He learns about it after it happened. All right? Now, that's an interesting thing all its own, right? Jesus did not even know who had been healed. The other Gospels record a really humorous moment. Jesus stops. I mean, you've got to remember the crowd, right? He's, he's barely able to breathe. And he stops, and everybody kind of stops with him. They're not sure what this is about. He turns around, and he says, Who touched me? And the disciples are understandably confused by the question because literally everyone is touching him. And so in Mark 31, this is how it goes. It says, and his disciples said to him, uh, you see the people around you on every side and you say, who is touching you? That's what the Bible says. I love it when there's humor in the scriptures. But then Jesus goes on to explain. He says, no, no, no. I felt power go out from me. Who was healed? All right, well, that tells you something right there. Who do you credit with the healing of this woman? I mean, did Jesus heal her? Well, not overtly. I mean, he was surprised. He says, in Matthew's account, it says he turns around and he says, your, your faith has healed you. But that's kind of at the end of this. In the moment, he doesn't even know who she is. He didn't even know what was happening. And if that's the case, if Jesus was not the actor, if he didn't initiate this moment, as it's apparent that he didn't, well, then that has to mean another member of the Godhead did the work, because we know it was God somewhere. Remember, when the second person of the Godhead took the form of man, we covered this early in this gospel. You remember, I told you, Jesus took on certain limitations that were made necessary by the form that he voluntarily assumed when he became incarnate. He was no less God because of that identity. But he voluntarily, the Bible says, emptied himself, coming to a place that's lower than angels. And in that way, Jesus had to then depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to do the miracles that we see him doing. It is not diminishing Jesus' deity to simply recognize that he made this sacrifice for us, that is coming to earth in a way that necessarily limited his power for a time. But that's why the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, to initiate his ministry with power. And so we have to conclude here that the Holy Spirit, working through Jesus, did that miracle. So, does that mean we credit the strength of a woman's faith for the reason that she got healed? You know, someone once said, it isn't the strength of our faith that brings us salvation, but it's having faith in a strong Savior that gives us salvation. And I think that's the answer here. The power to heal was God's alone. She received that power because she acted out of faith in the promises of God, particularly the promise in Malachi that Jesus was Messiah and as such had this unique ability to heal. And then lastly, the other gospel writers record that Jesus calls on this woman to confess to him in the crowd her situation. In Mark 30, we read this, as immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeded from him, had gone forth, he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So his first question is, who here has just received what I sent out, my power? Um, I find that interesting all by itself because he could have just kept walking. I mean, there's no, at that point, the healing's done. He didn't need anything from her. He was just going to go on anyway. But he calls for a public confession. 
And after delay, the, the woman finally steps up. I, I, I'd love to have seen that moment, that pregnant moment when he's asked, and everyone's been touching him, and he asks, who touched my garments? Everyone's like, I did, but so did everyone else. What's, you know, no one knows what they're in trouble for at this point. But the woman knew who he was talking to. Right? The woman knew. Mark says this in 5.32, He looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and notice, told him the whole truth which I think included the fact that she had this unclean status. So what are we learning from this moment between Jesus and the woman? Well, first, it should be apparent to you that the woman's healing follows a form here that is a beautiful picture of salvation generally. I mean, first of all, she's unclean. She's excluded from the commonwealth of God's people. And she stays that way until she comes to faith in Jesus. And then by her faith in the promises found in God's word... She's drawn to Christ, and in her coming to Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, she receives something from Him, the power that He offers her. And that happens on the basis of faith alone, even before she sees Jesus face to face. And her healing comes accompanied by a public confession, which Jesus requires of her. Not as the means to salvation, but in concert with her salvation. In other words, we are saved by grace, through faith. The grace comes to bring a salvation, prompting the faith that then publicly confesses. They're inseparable, but you have to make sure you know where the power comes from. She wasn't saved by touching the garment. She was saved because she had faith in the one wearing the garment. But she touched it in order to receive what the man had for her. There's a union of these two, but they go in a specific order. And Scripture teaches that when we come to faith, we do it based on the good news contained in God's Word, that we come to have our sins washed away, that is to be made clean by the blood of Christ, that by the power of the Spirit we're born again, cleansed, made new, and then in a day to come we will see Jesus face to face. But in the meantime, having come to Him in faith, we confess Him publicly, because that's His expectation. And by that, we're reconciled to God. All right, so you can see that nice pattern. I think the woman here gives us that. But this woman's experience is a departure from previous miracles in the way Matthew has recorded it here because faith has taken the center stage here in a way that's not been true up to this point, that has not been a requirement up to this point. And the reason, as I said, for that change will become apparent in chapter 12. But I want you to notice that's a common feature to all of these miracles. That is to say, all of these miracles take place in time after the events of chapter 12. Matthew has moved them forward to this point to make them a part of this montage. But their uniqueness stands out nonetheless. They are miracles that happen only for those who have faith, which is a departure from what Jesus had been doing, which was to offer miracles to anyone regardless of faith. Something changes. Something happens in the course of his ministry. Something that we'll see in chapter 12 that makes faith now a prerequisite for any healing Jesus does after that point. We'll see that when we get there. Meanwhile, let's go to the fundamental question to finish. What's the connection between this woman and the ruler? Well, the two stories are obviously intertwined. They both have faith at the center and both have that curious detail of 12. And I'm going to frustrate you here because I'm going to tell you we have to wait till next week to get the full answer because we haven't finished the story of him. Now, you all were coming back next week anyway, I'm sure. So you'll get it then. But we can look at a piece of it now. The Lord is using this woman's faith to prepare that father for a test of his own that's coming. Now, we know Jesus is setting off to heal this daughter. But we also know that because of his delay in dealing with this woman, by the time he gets to the house, the girl will be dead. Which means that when the father returns, he will face a dilemma, a crisis of faith in that moment. 
Will he still have the faith to think that Jesus can heal his daughter when he hears that she is dead? Or will he give up hope? Will he just throw in the towel? Will he assume, oh, we're too late. You should have been here sooner. Now you might think, well, Jesus can raise people from the dead. Surely he'll know that. Well, hold on a second. He doesn't have the gospel. He doesn't have the New Testament. He hasn't even seen Jesus himself resurrected. And while you and I might assume that this is a, a, a no-brainer, don't, don't assume that because this is a huge leap of faith for anyone. I ask you this. How many times have you prayed to have someone healed? But how many times have you prayed to have someone resurrected? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm not saying it can't. You see my point? I'm not saying you'll get your answer just because you pray. What I am saying, though, is we stop praying when they die, don't we? At least as far as their health is concerned. And I just want to suggest to you that he's in the same boat. That it's logical for us to assume he's in the same boat. So, when this man finds out that this daughter of his is gone... What I'm hoping, what I think Jesus was hoping he would remember, is the earlier moment with that woman. Because that woman's healing becomes an opportunity for this father to learn a lesson of how faith actually works. That woman acted in complete confidence in the power of a promise found in God's word. There was no doubt in her mind that this was going to work. And she had her life restored to her merely on the basis of her confidence in that. And she had a lot on the line too. You know, we talked about this guy and what he had on the line. She had a lot on the line too. I mean, if they had found out she was unclean, she's on the road again. She's moving. Furthermore, I want you to notice how the Lord constructed the moment here to strengthen his faith. The Lord ensured that the woman's healing would emphasize faith on the father's part because the woman's condition was not visible. Nobody knew that she was bleeding and therefore nobody could know she was healed. All the man had was the woman's testimony. So here again... Faith, not sight. He would have to believe what she said and believe that it happened and put two and two together. And when he sees the opportunity at his own home to put fear and doubt aside and have his faith strengthened by what he saw in the earlier moment. And in that moment, I wonder if the man's mind went back to Malachi. Because if you go just three verses later in the same place of Malachi where you hear about healing in wings, you read this. Malachi 4, 5. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now we know Malachi was talking about something very specific, something in the end times. Nevertheless, I wonder if a father in this situation might see a connection in his case. That is, would the father consider this? If God is willing to use a prophet like Elijah to restore children to their fathers, will not the Messiah be able to do as much or more? That is, could this Messiah restore my daughter to me? I don't know what he was thinking. But we know he remained confident in his ability to heal. And so I think from the woman's situation came an important lesson of faith, which the man then took into the moment that God gave him. And I think you can see what God does to all of us in this. That is, the situation of this woman and the situation of this ruler demonstrates something that I know I have found to be true in my own life as a believer. And I would think anyone who's been a believer for very long should find also an identity in. That is, living out your faith comes basically down to two essential behaviors. If you want to boil it all down, it's two things just done over and over again. It's first, like the woman, that is living in a complete trust that God is at work keeping promises found in His Word. That what is written is going to happen. And that what is said is true. And that you can bet on it. You can bet everything on it. You don't need plan B. You know, you don't have to believe in Jesus and then have something in the background just in case this doesn't turn out. That's not faith. That's synchronism. 
Now, this woman knew what was coming because she knew what the Word said and she had no doubt about it. The how and the when of all these things are simply a matter of God's timing and place, but eventually everything comes to pass. And so as a Christian, we just live in that expectation all the time, thinking about the future, living according to that. I have a phrase, as you know, for saying this, living with eyes for eternity. All right, that, just do that over and over again. And then secondly, the second piece of this is like the Father that is striving to pay attention to every little faith lesson that the Lord is taking time to show us in the everyday by and by of life. Because that's what He does. Recognize God is sovereign. There's no coincidence. Everything that's happening is happening because God made it happen to you a certain way for a certain reason. The only question is, are you gaining the faith lesson out of each of those moments? Or are you complaining about them? Or taking them for granted? You know, connect the dots. Take what you read in the Bible to what you see happening in your life, to what you know is coming in the future, and connect that in your own experience and let God teach you from that experience. By the way, we're much better at telling other people about this than we are about actually thinking of it in our own situations, right? I know God will teach you something through this trial, and then in your own trial you're like, why is it happening to me? You'll understand these things. You know, a sick daughter will become an opportunity for you to become more dependent on the Lord. A delay in getting help, like this man experienced, is simply an opportunity for a faith lesson or, or a chance to build patience. An impossible situation, like a dead daughter that can't be raised, that's just a, a display of great confidence in the Lord, if you want to make it one. You know, look, friends, I have a saying, life's tragedies are only tragic if you fail to learn the lessons God intended. So I want you to reflect on that this week. Just consider whether your life reflects those two tenets of living out your faith. Do you really live with a confidence that what this says is true and it informs everything you do? And are you attentive to your daily walk from the perspective of what is God teaching me through all these experiences? How is He moving my heart into greater and greater faith? If you do those two things, I doubt there's much more I could train you to do. That'll get you where you need to go. Let's pray. Dear Father, train us up, Father. Use your word as you do, and train us up. I thank you, Father, for the patience tonight of those who stayed to listen and heard a lot of words spoken, a lot of things happened. But, Lord, I pray that in the sum of it all, uh, you were glorified and that your truth came through more than anything. For each heart here, Father, I pray that there would be a, a renewed commitment to knowing and living your word and a, a new interest, perhaps, in the daily ways you train us up to have an attentiveness to what is going on around us so that we don't miss those lessons. And then finally, Father, I pray we each have the courage that these two individuals in Scripture demonstrated, a courage that puts all the cares and the needs and the desires of this world aside and seeks only for what is coming from you. It's a hard thing sometimes, Father. I pray that we have the courage to do that. Because if we learn lessons and we don't apply them, then they have given us no value. So let us have that chance, Father, to show our faith. Bring us back in a week to come. Let us learn as we did tonight again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.